I invite you to take your Bibles, if you have one, or a Bible from the pew rack, and turn with me to Romans chapter 2, the New Testament, the book of Romans chapter 2. And while you're turning, a few words of overview and orientation. If you're newer this morning, we're preaching through this great letter of Paul to the Romans In the first three chapters, his main agenda is to persuade and to demonstrate that Gentiles and Jews, that is everybody, is under the power of sin and in desperate need of the gospel of verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. This demonstration of our need begins in verse 18 of chapter 1. From 18 to 32, it's all about the Gentile nations who know God because He's been manifest in creation and they know His ways because they're written on their hearts and they suppress them and do not honor God or thank Him as they ought and they do not live out what they know to be right. And therefore, the conscience of every human being is dirty. And we are guilty before the Lord. And then in chapter 2, he does the same thing for Jews who had the idea that because they possessed the law and could pass judgment on those bad Gentiles, therefore there might be some special avenue to life. And Paul undoes all of that in this chapter, and we're, we're in the middle of it now. In verses 1 to 5, it's pointing out that they have no excuse because even though they do point their finger at others, they are doing the same kinds of things. And then in verse 6, which is where our text is going to begin today, he says that the criterion of judgment, when God comes in His Son again, is not going to be Jewishness or Gentilishness, it's going to be deeds. Start at verse 6. God will render to each person according to his deeds. Now he unpacks that. Judgment according to deeds. Verse 7. To those who by perseverance in doing good, there's good deeds, doing good, Seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will render eternal life. So those are the ones who will receive eternal life. Verse 8. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, he will render wrath and indignation. Then he says it again, verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil... The Jew first and also the Greek. Now verse 10. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. The point of those verses mainly, as we saw last week, was that Jews and Gentiles will both be judged by the same 
standard. You might drop your eyes down to verse 11 and pick up that there is no partiality with God. So Jews are not going to get an edge on heaven. And Gentiles are not going to be at a disadvantage of getting to heaven. Though the Jews may go first to heaven and first to hell, whether they go to the one or the other is going to be cited on the same criterion. That's the point here. So these Jews who, in verses 1 to 5, were pointing their finger and making accusations about the Gentiles who sin are also guilty because they themselves do similar things, and it is the doing of them that will be their undoing, not their Jewishness or lack of it. Now here's the question we raised at the end of last week. How does verses 6 to 10, with its prophecy of a judgment coming that is according to works, fit with the whole scope of this book, which is about justification by faith, apart from works of the law? That's the question. Now, there are two possible answers to that, at least, but two main ones. And before I tell you what they are, I want to make sure you know what the question is not. All right? For me, anyway, the question is not whether this book teaches and whether God endorses and whether it is true that justification is by faith. And just to underline this, I want to give you four texts. So if I were you and I wanted to use my Bible in witnessing to others along these lines, I would with a pen or pencil put a J or something like that beside each of these four verses standing for justification by faith. J-F maybe. The first one is chapter 3 verse 28. We'll just walk right through the book up to chapter 8. Pointing out these key statements to show you what I think is not in question. We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Romans 3.28 So getting right with God happens when we are united to Jesus by faith and His righteousness becomes our righteousness. And God then vindicates us for Jesus' sake before the throne of His righteousness. So faith is the key. Second verse, chapter 4, verse 5. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. That's a massively important phrase. Justifies the ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness. Now the whole point there is, Another kind of accumulated righteousness, say by storing up a lot of good deeds, by which we might negotiate with God in order to earn our vindication, is not the way to heaven. It's not what our salvation is based on. Rather, the one who does not work, 
but justifies the ungodly, believes in the one who justifies the ungodly, that faith is treated as a whole righteousness because it's the thing that unites him to Christ who is our righteousness. Third verse, Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's done. Having been justified by faith. Sinners though we be, we stand acquitted with the righteousness of Christ imputed to us through faith alone. Last verse, chapter 8, verses 33 to 34, and this may be the best of all because here we get a glimpse into the throne room of of heaven at the judgment day. If you wonder what it's going to be like, this is what it's going to be like for all of God's elect. Verse 33 of Romans 8. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? Notice the future tense. Who will bring... Any charge against God's elect? And the answer to that is nobody. As you stand before the bar of God on the last day, no accusation or condemnation will be successfully lodged against you. Why not? Next phrase. God is the one who justifies. This thing is in the hands of God. And God has said in all these other verses that he justifies on the basis of faith So whatever people may stand up, scream out against us. God says, my elect cannot be condemned. Now he gives the foundation in the next verse. Who is the one who condemns? And the answer to that question is, there's nobody. It's a rhetorical question with the answer expected, nobody. Why? Answer, Jesus Christ is he who died. Yes, and was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who intercedes for us. Now and he will intercede for us then. So... Nobody can bring a successful charge against us. Nobody can condemn us. Because God is the one who justifies and Christ is the one who died. And this justification is built on that death, not my deeds. That's not in question to me. I am not asking whether that's true this morning. Though somebody is going to leave this room in a few minutes saying, I was. It happened after the last service. It'll happen after this one. So if you want to credit me with my intention, don't go to sleep on me. Every sentence counts in this service. 
Now, let's go back to the issue at hand. The issue at hand is, okay, in view of what you just argued for from these four passages, what about verse 6 through 10 of chapter 2? Because it looks at least like there is a judgment coming in which eternal life or eternal wrath and indignation are going to be dispensed according to works. That's what it says. That's what it says. So what are the two possible answers for how the two fit together? Here they are. And I'll tell you ahead of time, I'm going to argue for number two. So here's number one. The first answer would go like this. What these verses in Romans 2, 6 to 10 are saying is that eternal life would be based on and merited by a life of perfect obedience if anybody could produce it. And nobody can, and therefore, eternal life will not accord with works. So we must turn to the gospel and believe. I don't think that's the right interpretation. Here's the second one. What these verses are saying, alternatively, would be, God never promised that eternal life would be based on or merited by perfect obedience, but He has always commanded that there be a life of obedience to Vindicate the reality of faith which unites us to God as our righteousness. Say that one again. God has never taught, does not teach, nor will He ever teach that eternal life has been, is now, or ever will be based on and merited by anybody's good deeds. Nevertheless, he has always, does now, and always will teach that good deeds are a necessary demonstration of the validity and authenticity of faith which unites us to Jesus, our righteousness, on the basis of whom we are saved. Now that's a mouthful, and it's unbelievably important. So let's go to verse 7 and let me just say it again. Only this time, focus on verse 7 in chapter 2. Verse 7 says, To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, God will give eternal life. The first interpretation that I'm rejecting 
would say that this verse means to those who by perseverance in perfect obedience to God's law would be granted according to their merit eternal life. But since nobody does, go back to verse 17 and be justified by faith alone. The second interpretation would go like this. To those who persevere in doing good, not perfection by any stretch of the imagination, but a persevering, ongoing life that's been transformed by faith in Christ, our righteousness, who has obtained life for the elect, to those who persevere in the pursuit of good on the basis of that faith, in that righteousness, those people will receive eternal life and it will accord with those deeds. And so, verse 6 is right. There is a judgment according to works, not on the basis of works. Now, I want to argue for that position with four or five arguments. Number one, let's start in the context immediately and then just kind of move out in concentric circles and stay in Paul. My first argument is real simple. Verse 7 doesn't look like it's hypothetical. It just doesn't read that way. A simple, straightforward reading of it would seem to be that those who persevere in good work and seek thus for glory and honor and immortality are going to get eternal life. And if they don't, they won't. That's what it looks like. So that's my first argument, at least on the face of it. And sometimes faces are deceiving. So uh, if I was forced by surrounding verses to rethink that, I would. Here's my second argument. Move up to verses 4 and 5, just a couple of verses earlier, where it looks to me that Paul, in the way he's thinking right now, is not thinking about an all-or-nothing righteousness that a person has to have. He seems to be thinking in terms of repentance and a kind God who, if you repent, will blot out your transgressions. Let's read, starting in the middle of verse 4. The problem is, you don't know, you're not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. So, where's this wrath coming from? How's this wrath getting stored up on people? How's it getting piled up? It's not simply that they're doing bad things. It's that their heart is resistant to repentance. So you you have right here in the context a God who's kind, who is wooing people toward repentance such that if they repented, they'd have life. Having been sinners all their lives 
And probably, though I can't prove it from this verse, he would be saying, and if you go on repenting and confessing your sins day by day and hating it and asking for forgiveness and going on, he'd forgive every one of them for the rest of your life. That's the, that's the atmosphere of verses 4 and 5. And therefore, I, I walk with that atmosphere into verses 6 to 10. And I said, why should I change my thinking here? We have a God who has made a way home for people through repentance and faith. And it's going to accord with works. It's going to accord with a new life. Third argument. Now we go out of this chapter into chapter 6. So turn with me to chapter 6, verse 22, if you would. Here he's describing the Christian life, how it relates to our holiness and how it relates to our eternal life to come. He says, But now, having been freed from sin, this is 6.22, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, You derive your benefit, or literally, you have your fruit resulting in sanctification. That's holiness, or unto holiness. You have a fruit unto holiness. Your life is uh, has fruit hanging on its branches. There's sins there too. Of course there's sins there too. But there's fruit hanging on your branches. And and there's holiness sprouting in this burgeoning saint. And then this phrase. And the outcome. Eternal life. Now, the flow of thought there is identical to Romans 2.7, I believe. Eternal life is the outcome of sanctification and nothing else. That is, if sanctification is missing, the outcome will be missing. Eternal life is made to follow, not be based on as meritorious, but follow and accord with Sanctification or holiness, which comes from that mighty transaction which happened in the new birth when we were manumitted out of the slavery of sin and made slaves of God. And now fruit begins to come little by little in the Christian life. And that's called holiness or sanctification. And the outcome of it is eternal life. If you try to develop a doctrine as millions are trying to do today that says, oh no, we can take a detour around the middle of that verse and go from conversion to eternal life and don't have to have any of that stuff in the middle, you militate against this verse. That's not what it teaches. This verse teaches that between justification and glorification is sanctification. And without it, there is no reason to believe that you believe. Fourth argument. Romans 8, verses 12 and 13. Romans 8, verse 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, 
to live according to the flesh. Notice, to live according to the flesh. The issue is living here. How do you live? Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For, here's the reason now. If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds, it's a deed issue here, it's a deed thing, the deeds of the body, you will live. Now what's at stake in this verse? What's at stake in this verse is death and life. And it isn't physical, temporal death and life, because we know those things happen quite apart from these criteria. This is spiritual death and life and eternal death and life, and therefore we must read it in that light. Let's do. If you are living according to the flesh, you will eternally die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body... Things like gouging out your eye, like Jesus says. Better to lose your eye and go to heaven than with two eyes go to hell, Jesus said. Verse 13 of Romans 8 is the exposition of how to do Romans 2-7. Romans 2-7 says, By persevering in doing good, We will have eternal life. Romans 8.13 says, If you put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. And we're not talking about any kind of legalistic, self-wrought, mustered-up, earn-your-salvation kind of obedience here. We're talking about a profound spiritual transaction in which by faith in Jesus Christ alone, the power of the Holy Spirit comes on you and in you and frees you from damning sin. And without it, we do not live. Last argument. I'm going to jump to Galatians. Can you find it? I really would like you to look at this verse. Romans, First and Second Corinthians Galatians, chapter 6. This is the last one, and we'll be done. I go to Galatians because Galatians is the closest book Paul wrote to Romans. has the same constellation of ideas and thoughts. It's the same world. And therefore, this argument here in verses 8 and 9 of Galatians 6 is a beautiful exposition of what we're talking about in Romans 2, 7. The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. Now, the word corruption is the opposite of immortality. You can see that in the Greek. They're built on the same stem. So the word immortality in Romans 2, 7, those who want and pursue immortality by doing good... We'll get eternal life. And here is the opposite. Corruption. You could say incorruptible and corruptible, like it does in 1 Corinthians 15. The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruptibility. Death, hell, no resurrection unto life. But the one who sows to the Spirit... 
That's exactly the same as Romans 8.13, put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. He's talking about the same daily reality. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap. Now you tell me the next words. Let's say it. Will reap what? Okay, now I'm not saying it. Paul's saying it. Eternal life is reaped by sowing to the Spirit, not the flesh. That's the path to life. And there's no other path. Verse 9. Let us then not lose heart in doing good. What does that sound like? Isn't that identical to Romans 2.7? Those who persevere in doing good will be given eternal life. And Paul says here, you will reap eternal life. So don't lose heart in doing good. For in due time you will reap. What? Tell me. Say it again. And you don't get that from theology. You don't get it from John Piper. You get it from verse 8. There's nothing fancy about this exegesis. This is just straightforward Bible reading we're doing here. It says, The one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Reap eternal life. And now he's going to talk about reaping again and how you do it. And he says, so don't lose heart in doing good. That's the way you sow to the Spirit. In doing good. Because in due time you will reap eternal life. If you don't go weary. Have you ever wondered why Paul would say things like, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Typical contemporary American easy believism cannot make any sense out of fear and trembling in the Christian life. The reason there's fear and trembling in the Christian life is very simple eternity hangs on Christian living. We've developed a whole theology to say nothing hangs on Christian living. I could give you books that are written by so-called evangelicals precisely to say nothing hangs on Christian living. Only that first act of faith gets you to heaven and nothing in between has anything to do with it. Now, you've got to decide this issue. Because it is huge. The upshot of it all is this. I'll say it. I'll say it again. At the last day, according to the book of Revelation, we're going to stand before a throne to give an account of our lives. And there's going to be two books opened. A book of life in which names are written. And the books recording your life and your deeds. And what Romans 2, 6 means is between these two books, there is a cord. They accord. 
He calls it a judgment according to works. So that when God reads the list of those who are his, he will be able to go to the books, brush away all the failures, and there are many in my life, and take the fruit, the sanctification, and hold it up to the whole world and say, this is the work of my spirit giving evidence that these people put their faith in my son who has now procured infallibly their entrance into glory. And the entrance into glory will not be earned by, merited by, or based on those deeds. Oh, I wish you would leave believing that I taught what I taught this morning. But I know some of you are going to leave saying, Oh, good night. Now we got to earn our salvation. got to work our way to heaven. But it's not true. And so I just close with this exhortation. Tremble at what is at stake in your daily life. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Second thing I want to say and close with is this. Trust Christ to get you to God. Trust Christ to get you to God. Some people say they do that when what they want is not God, but the gifts of God. Forgiveness and escape from hell. That won't work. Trusting Christ is trusting Him for God. Do you want God this morning? Not forgiveness alone. Not escape from hell alone. Do you want God? If so, you will have Him. If you trust Christ to get you to God. And that would imply trusting Christ to enable you to do everything you've got to do to get to God. And so when you face a temptation, you don't think, oh, I've got to earn my salvation here. You think, my only hope is Jesus. Come, Christ. Come, Holy Spirit. Satisfy me. Fill me. Empower me. Break the chains of this thing on my life. You are my only hope. That's the way you live the Christian life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask, I plead for understanding in your people. I ask and I plead for a right grasp of biblical truth. I write, I I ask and I plead, Lord, that we would be not selective in our loves of Scripture, but that we would embrace the whole counsel of God. And I beg of you, Lord, that you, the Holy Spirit, would come. 
and empower us by faith to walk the path that leads to life. Would you stand for benediction? I'll be here at the front and others will be here. And if you want to pray about anything, we'd love to pray with you. And just like last week, now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before the throne or the presence of his glory without blemish and with rejoicing to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and authority and dominion before all time now and forevermore. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.